0: Welcome back to the Fishing for Problems podcast. As our last show of the year, we are re-releasing a podcast that Matt did with Professor Edward DC. Professor DC is a professor of psychology and a Gowan professor in the social sciences at the University of Rochester and director of its human motivation program. We got permission from Dr. DC to rebroadcast this episode and we hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with brand new episodes next week in the new year. Hope you enjoy this one. We had the pleasure of interviewing Edward DC. Edward is a professor of psychology at the University of Rochester who focuses on human motivation, particularly the nature and development of self determination, and is one of the champions of self determination theory. If you're looking for more information about that, uh, the website is selfdeterminationtheory.org. Edward and I uh, were able to chat for about 35 to, to 40 minutes. Um, I feel like we could have talked for hours, uh, but uh, time was limited on, uh, on both ends. But uh, there's a lot in there about uh, high-level overview of, uh, of what self-determination theory is. We talk a lot about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation um, and how to how to motivate people to uh, you know to, to make the right decisions and to choose to, to work hard. And so, uh, you know, we talk about uh, particularly kids, um, primarily because, uh, you know, I'm a I'm an educator and uh, wanted to focus more on K to 12 education. So that's primarily what you're seeing in our conversation. Um, the The focus of the questions that I created were from uh, his book, "Why We Do What We Do." Um, I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's not a challenging read. Um, it's uh, it's not particularly long either, but I found myself spending lots and lots of time going back, rereading, because uh, I just felt like there was so much in there. So um, if you're looking to learn more about what we talked about today in the, in our conversation, I would certainly recommend taking a look at that book. And again, going to his website, selfdeterminationfairy.com. Um, other than that, uh, again, if you feel like you have some guests that you think would be helpful to bring on the podcast, I'm um, more than happy to listen to uh, those requests. Uh, but otherwise, without further ado, I bring you Edward DC. So uh, we have Edward DC today on the podcast. Um, Ed, thanks so much for joining today.
1: You're welcome. Thanks um, for inviting me.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, can we start off today by having you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your background and the work that, that you do?
1: Um, I'm a psychologist, have been um, a, a professor at the University of Rochester for 47 years, maybe it's 48 by now. Um, And my field is human motivation. That's what I've worked on my entire career. And in particular, I do self-determination theory. Um, That's something that I do in collaboration with Richard Ryan. We've had a wonderful um, collegial relationship for, I don't know, Close to forty years, I would say, and um, and it's all focused around the idea of of self determination theory. So everything I do is that it may look different because it might be studying close personal relationships, or it might be studying life in. Work organizations, or it might be about parenting or it might be neuroscience studies, but it's all about self-determination therapy so um, that's what I've been doing and will doing will continue doing as long as I do anything.
0: so uh, why why study motivation? How did you get into that
1: um, because it's the most interesting thing I can think of
0: and uh, self-determination theory Um, so I recently read why we do what we do Uh, if you haven't read it I would uh, I would certainly recommend it to, uh, to our listeners, but um, self-determination theory is the broader theory on which um, the book is based. So I want to start by spending the first part of our, our podcast today exploring the general principles behind SDT and defining key terms. So uh, first off, what is self-determination theory?
1: <clears throat> it's a theory of human motivation. Now, most people, when they think about motivation, think about it in a unitary way. That is to say, they always think about the amount of motivation. How much motivation do you have or don't you have? How do I get my kids more motivated to do something? How do I get my employees less motivated to do things? Always it's talking about the amount of motivation. But in self-determination theory, we think that Amount of motivation is not really an important and interesting thing. Instead, from the very beginning, we have attempted to look at types of motivation, believing that different types of motivation lead to different quality outcomes. In self-determination theory, the most critical distinction between types of motivation is between what we call autonomous motivation and controlled motivation. Autonomous motivation, you are autonomously motivated when you're doing something with a full sense of willingness, volition, and choice. Your experience is one of being interested, involved, um, very much in, in... a willingness to be doing what you're doing. When you do things that you love, you're autonomously motivated. You're very engaged in what you're doing. Controlled motivation, on the other hand, involves doing things out of obligation with a sense of pressure and demand. So here, what we find is that people are less willing to do it. They're not doing it with a sense of real desire and um, volition, but rather they're doing it for some other reason. For example, they're getting a reward for it or they're avoiding a punishment or they're doing it because someone is important like a parent is demanding that they do it. That's controlled motivation. And the outcomes associated with these two types of motivation are very different.
0: And so uh, what are the outcomes of those two types of motivation that you've, you've researched?
1: When you're, piece, when you're autonomously motivated, you find, for instance, that your learning tends to be deeper and more conceptual You're more creative in the way you're solving the problem or are learning the material. You um, are more... It's associated, autonomous motivation is associated with greater psychological well-being and also it turns out with greater physical health and well-being. So there are a whole range of positive consequences associated with high level of performance, with well-being, with deep learning, and so on that are associated with autonomous motivation. When it comes to controlled motivation, people do learn when their motivation is controlled, but it tends to be more rote learning rather than conceptual and deeper learning. They find that it's not so interesting for them. They're just doing it with a kind of sense of, oh, resistance and and the wish that they weren't doing this now. They're not nearly as, um, as engaged in the process. They're not um, nearly as high in terms of wellness or well-being, they don't enjoy the process, it's really very different with the consequences being much more positive if their motivation is autonomous than control.
0: Great. And before getting into a conversation about how to promote autonomy, and we're going to save that for um, for a little bit later, I want to... Uh, you know, go a little bit deeper into uh, autonomous behavior versus controlled behavior and provide uh, even more clarification on what um, those two terms uh, mean specifically. So can you talk a little bit about autonomy versus individualism versus independence? Um, Because it seems like you think these are all Um, separate things, and uh, I think there are people who might look at those and say that they are not separate, that individualism, that independence, that autonomy are all all the same. Um, So maybe a definition or some examples around
1: those. you happen to still have a a dictionary, which people don't do much anymore, so you'd have to pull out your phone to do this, Um, and you looked under autonomy, you would find that one of the definitions is probably independence. But even though that is one of the definitions, it is not the definition we use. Another of the definitions will be this idea of volition, willingness, and choice. Freedom sometimes gets associated with it as well. That's the kind of, that's the definition that for us is what autonomy means for us. So um, yes, it can mean independence, but we don't mean it in that way. In fact, it's possible for you to be autonomously independent, that is to say, You want to go walk in the woods by yourself or do it all on your own, and you can be completely autonomous with a full sense of willingness and choice in being independent, but it's also the case that you can be autonomously dependent, and in fact, I hope you are. I hope there are people in your life where you can feel a sense of autonomous um, dependence, like you may have a spouse or best friends, and you're quite willing for them to make choices for you around certain kinds of things. So that's where the distinction is, that um, it does, as we use it, autonomy has all to do with this idea of willingness, of volition, of choice, of concurring with what you're doing, whether or not you're doing it independently or dependently.
0: Great, thank you. What about the concept of controlled behavior? So you uh, you describe two types of controlled behavior in your work: defiance and compliance. Uh-huh. Uh, it's probably not a huge stretch that most folks might look at these and say that they're opposites. But if they are opposites, how can they both be considered controlled behaviors? And I guess do you view them as opposites as well?
1: <coughs> well. Controlled, being controlled means that there's something that's pressuring you and pushing you to do something. Sometimes it's another person like a parent or a teacher or a boss, a physician perhaps, in which they're pressuring you to do a behavior. And lots of times when people are pressured to do behaviors, they do them they may be resentful about doing them they may not want to be doing them they may do things like (laughs) do it not as well as they would um, and are capable of doing but still they will do it I think if you go into most schools and look around you'll see students doing things but they're doing it out of compliance They're feeling pressured to do it, and so they do it. Okay, now, our point is that it's usually the case that if you're being pressured or um, um, feeling obligated to do something, you may very well go ahead and do it, but if you're doing it, There's a part of you that wants to say, to heck with this. There's a part of you that wants to defy and not comply, and sometimes you will defy. If the pressure gets bad enough, for instance, you might just do the opposite because you're being pressured to do it. They're both forms of control because in one case, I'm pressuring you and you're going along with it. And in the other place, I'm pressuring you and you're pushing back and doing the opposite of what I'm trying to get you to do. But in both cases, you're doing it because you're pressured. If you're defying, you're doing it because I'm pressuring you. When you're complying, you're doing it because I'm pressuring you. So it is both, they are both related to control.
0: There was an example that you use in your book about uh, a straight A student uh, in college, a pre-med student who, uh, you know, mother, father might be a doctor and they're pressured to uh, go into pre-med and certainly have all the skills to succeed in college, but end up dropping out uh, as a defiant behavior. And I thought it was it was helpful conceptually to think about that as a defiant behavior because it seems like you know defiance is the ultimate act of uh, autonomy, um, but in that case that uh, the act of dropping out is actually you know based on what you have written a uh, a defiant behavior a controlled behavior in which the pressures um, influence. The, the decision as opposed to it being internalized by, uh, by the owner of that action. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so what about the concept of integration? How is that uh, a central component of self-determination theory?
1: <clears throat> Autonomous motivation has two general types one of them is called intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation means you're doing something because you find it interesting and enjoyable. When you have free time, you go do things that you really enjoy. That's intrinsic motivation. You're doing it out of this sense of interest, enjoyment, and so on. Okay. There are lots of things in your life that you don't find interesting to do that are important to do. And as a parent, you know that there are things you want your child to do that the child doesn't necessarily want to do. In those kinds of situations where there's something that you want someone else to do because you believe it's right for him or her, but the other person doesn't want to do it, What you have as a way of facilitating that is extrinsic motivation. You can, for example, request it. Perhaps you would offer a reward for it. That's not the best type of motivation, but still you might. But you're trying to do something as a way of facilitating the person doing that because he or she wouldn't do it on his or her own. Now, in those circumstances where the motivation is extrinsic, doing it because my dad asked me to, for example, under those circumstances, we want the person to take the regulation of that behavior and internalize it to make it their own the idea of in, internalization, which is very common for young people, there's a tendency in young people to internalize things that, that important people in their lives do. Kids internalize in kind of naturally what their parents are doing around them, for instance. What we're attempting to facilitate in extrinsic motivation is internalization in which the regulation of the behavior becomes internal. The idea of internalizing something is really a special case of what we call integration. There is a life force within all of us to integrate aspects of ourselves. We take material from the external world bring it inside us and then integrate it with who we are we have emotions we have drives that exist within us that operate on us and our task is to integrate them and make them part of ourselves so integration is this natural human process in which we take parts of ourselves and integrate them into um, harmonious relationship with each other. So when we talk about extrinsic motivation, which is necessary sometimes, our goal or aim is to get people to internalize and integrate with the regulation of that as so that it becomes truly part of themselves,
0: yeah, as you say in, uh, in your text, um, being the captain of your own ship or the agent of your of your own actions. Um, so uh, I, I do want to move on um, soon to how to promote autonomy and how to internalize motivation uh, as an educator and okay. as somebody who I think uh, whose target audience is educators. Um, I want to spend uh, you know as much time as possible there. But um, I do have uh, a couple more questions before jumping into that. Um, One thing that I was particularly interested in is that you write that as people become more authentic, they develop greater capacity for autonomous self-regulation. They also become capable of a deeper relatedness to others. And I find this fascinating. Um, Personally, I'm interested in the benefits of meditation and the value of practicing things like self-love. And experts in the field of meditation, you know, might say that you need to love yourself to be um, able to truly open yourself up to others. So I'd love to hear your psychological perspective um, on this. Like, what what research have you done that shows that authenticity, that true autonomy can lead to a greater degree of connectedness to other individuals?
1: Let's hold it because I'm not ready to talk about that yet. Okay. Great. Um, I'm, I want to talk about the issue of how you facilitate internalization. Yep. Um, and, okay, so there's another part of self-determination theory that's extremely important, and that is we believe, those of us, Rich Ryan and myself and many other people who've been working on the development of self-determination theory. We believe that all human beings, all human beings, regardless of age, of gender, of culture, whatever, all human beings have three basic psychological needs. In order to be healthy, to develop effectively, people have to feel a sense of competence. When they feel competent, that leaves them feeling good about themselves. When they feel competent, they are engaging the world around them with a sense of satisfaction and engagement. So people need to feel competent. When they don't feel competent, what happens? They start to feel bad. And then they start to feel bad about themselves. And then we see things like they begin to get depressed and like they don't want to be involved in whatever is going on and so forth. Okay. So competence is one need that all human beings have. A second is relatedness. People need to feel related to others. Um, sure, it's nice to be alone sometimes, but it's also nice to be engaged, involved with other people, to be part of groups in some settings. The idea of belonging and feeling related is a very important thing. When we feel it, it helps our sense of well-being, and when we don't, it helps our sense of ill-being. So the second basic psychological need is relatedness. There's no particular order to these, I'm just saying them. And the third one is autonomy. I've been talking about autonomy already, but now I'm taking a step further and saying that autonomy is a basic human need. People have to feel autonomy in order to be optimally healthy and well. Okay, now all three of these needs are important for well being and optimal engagement. The importance of recognizing these basic psychological needs is that the way in which you facilitate internalization, the way in which you facilitate people engaging interestedly in the world around them is by creating the circumstances that allow them to feel competent, autonomous, and related. If you as a parent want to facilitate internalization of regulations for things that you think are important for your child to do then what you need to do is relate to that child in such a way that he or she is feeling competent related and autonomous and you can do that you can create the conditions for a child or for a student if you happen to be a teacher. Or for an employee, if you happen to be a manager, you can create the conditions that allow them to feel competent. How do you do that? You give them positive feedback, for example. You give them opportunities to learn new things. There are many different ways that help people feel competent in the workplace and in school and so forth. Okay? So part of your job as a manager or as a teacher is to help your students or employees to feel competent in whatever it is that they're up to doing. It's also the case that you can help them feel a sense of relatedness. Be nice to them. Relate to them. (laughs) Relate to them in a way that's kind of Open and encouraging, for example. Um, l- relate to them in such a way that they, they go away thinking, wow, my teacher really likes me. My teacher thinks I'm a good person, for example. Okay? And the same with autonomy. How do you facilitate their feeling a sense of autonomy? You allow them to make choices for themselves, for example. You encourage them without pressuring them to do important activities. So all of those things you can do. And it all really boils down to this idea of the three basic psychological needs. As a teacher, you need to create the conditions in the classroom that will allow the students to feel competent, autonomous and related. And if you can do that, you're gonna have optimal motivation in that classroom.
0: Well, so while we're here, can you provide some uh, specific examples of how you've seen teachers or or parents go about uh, providing those, those circumstances that promote competence relatedness or autonomy?
1: Sure, the teachers allow students to make choices about what to do, about when to do it, about how to do it, for example. Yes, of course, there's certain things they need to do at certain times for some reason or another, but the more opportunities they take to give their students choice, the more the students are gonna feel a sense of autonomy and be more fully engaged in the activity. I've I've already said with respect to relatedness, relate to them, care about them, be open to them, encourage them to talk to you and to be open to you. All in any sense in which you're showing respect for your students, true respect for your students is going to lead the students to feel satisfaction of the basic psychological needs. It is your job as a teacher to respect and care about your students. That's the starting place if you want, in my opinion, that's the starting place if you want to be a good teacher. You respect them, you care about them, and you respond to them when they have things on their minds
0: so you yeah you're talking about choice you said uh, what to do how to do it when to do it i think adding why they're doing it is also critical and i think that <clears throat> we well, we why s- to
1: doing it that it that is true that it's important for teachers, if they're asking a student to do something, whatever it is, that they provide a rationale. Why is this something that's important to you? Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Rationales are are very important if you're asking somebody to do something.
0: Yep. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more In that. You write that um, the person being offered the choice must have the information necessary for making a meaningful decision, and I think that's where you you know you get into supporting students as as an educator as a socializing agent in uh-huh. um, you know in, in in supporting them in what what to do how to do it when to do it why to do it. Um, how do you ensure that folks get the information they need to make a meaningful decision? Um, And, you know, in the work that I do, we talk about this all the time, data-driven decision-making, using data to inform decisions. Um, But getting not just data, but the right data is a challenge, but also just providing Providing information, I think we often skip over those steps of you know uh, of um, of providing the necessary information that helps students make important choices uh, make the right choices or even I, have opportunities to make the wrong choices mm-hmm. yeah, I agree, and it's not just
1: in classrooms it's in many other places as well sometimes I've seen doctors um who A patient comes in and and has a problem and um, the doctor may say what the problem is and then say to the patient, so what would you like to do about it? (laughs) I think, wait a second, You, you have knowledge about what happened. You, the doctor, has knowledge about what will happen if you do X and knowledge about what will happen if you do Y, and what will happen if you do Z, and most people probably don't. So to say to a patient, what do you want to do before you give them the information about what's likely to happen when you do X, and when you do Y, and when you Z, do Z, that's what I'm talking about, and the same is true in the classroom. The students won't necessarily know what's likely to happen if they choose certain kinds of things. And if you can provide them that information, teachers usually do know, often better than students do, what's likely to happen if they choose doing their arithmetic but not their reading or whatever. Um, and so um, yeah you can you can be supportive of their choices by helping them understand the consequences of choosing different options.
0: And Yeah, and so let's, uh, let's build upon that because, you know, you talk about a concept uh, of, of limit setting, and so you write that limit setting is an extremely important for promoting responsibility by setting limits in an autonomy, supportive way. In other words, by aligning yourself with the person being limited, uh, recognizing that he or she is a proactive subject rather than an object to be manipulated or controlled, that it's possible to encourage responsibility without undermining Authenticity. Um, so, so you write that you know limit setting is about encouraging responsibility. It's about recognizing that we have choices and our choices have consequences, and that we must be ready for the consequences. Um, and this makes me think about uh, my time in the classroom. Um, one of the schools that I uh, that I taught at we had a restorative justice approach to classroom management and it was all about giving students ownership over their decisions. Um, And a huge part of this process, as as you elaborate on in your book, is about providing the information necessary to make an informed decision. And this might be a bit of an extreme example, but a teacher that I worked with was faced with a situation where a student wanted to flip over uh, his desk and in her classroom. And instead of saying he couldn't do it and controlling the conversation, she said that the choice was his, but that there would be a consequence if he decided to flip the desk. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes we get in situations like that where we want to control the behavior. Um, but in the end we want kids to own up to their behavior, good or bad. Mm -hmm. So you know, some teachers and parents, they understand this. They understand the importance of limit setting, but others don't. So, Some believe that, um, you know, permissiveness is important to building independence, that rules are bad, that kids do not like structure. So what would you say to folks that believe, who believe that rules are bad and that limit setting is counterproductive?
1: What I think is that um, there are important things for people to do in life there are important things for children to learn to do to, um There are important things for them to take responsibility for doing. You know, I, if I happen to be living with my child, or if I'm a teacher and it's a student, um, a young student, for instance, and we're the classroom or our home or whatever, is on a busy corner. I don't want the kids to go playing in the middle of a busy intersection. That's important for them not to do. I want to set limits on that. There are lots of important things that um, uh, for young people to to do and to learn about and to take responsibility for themselves. And so the idea of Limit setting is merely to create a situation where we are clear about what it is that um, we're asking them to do, stay in the backyard, for instance, if that's important for whatever reason. Um, And so we say that this is what we're interested in. And The consequence of staying there is such and such, and the consequences of not doing it is such and such. Now, I'm not pressuring you to do it. I'm simply saying those are the consequences, and if you don't do it, then I'm going to say, okay, we laid out up front that it's your choice to do it or not to do it. And each one of those has a consequences, and so the consequences for this. It's not a punishment. I'm not angry and upset with you. I'm not going to spank you or whatever. It's just a matter of, okay, this is the consequence. We know about it. We knew about it beforehand, and, um, and I'm, I'm doing that because I'm wanting you to think about the importance of this in your own life.
0: And it, yeah, it gives, it gives uh, kids ownership over their actions. I know as an educator, you, you, you know, I've found that without that limit setting, you have kids who are confused about what they can and cannot do. Yeah. And the lack of structure uh sets you up for, for failure. And um when you see, you know, kids maybe not behaving in the way that you expect them to without providing them the information up front that they need to make the right decisions and then you come down hard on them, that's incredibly confusing to them. Very confusing. Yes. Yeah, because they're not, they're not aware of the consequences. And Mm -hmm. I think. You know, from an early age, being able to have conversations with with kids about, uh, you know, about consequences, about life. Life is full of decisions and all of those decisions that you make uh, ultimately have consequences, good or bad. Um, and uh, to, I think, promote autonomy, the more that people are aware of uh, of various consequences that their decisions have, they're able to... Um, internalize the decision-making process and make some decisions that ideally um, are are to their benefit.
1: Yeah. There is one thing I'd like to say um, at this point based on some words you've used, and that is that I'd like to clarify that the concept of structure and control are two very different things. Control means pressuring people to think, feel, or behave in certain ways. That's control. And lots of times I hear people say, that child needs more structure. When really in the, <laughs> in the mind of the teacher or parent or adult who's saying it, what they want is to control the child more. I agree the child may need more structure, but the child does not need more control. You can give structure in an autonomy supportive or need supportive way. You can give structure in a way so that the child feels competent, feels autonomous, and feels related, for example. And so what you're doing there is... You're really letting the child understand the consequences of behaving in particular ways and then allowing them to make a
0: choice about how they behave. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. So that's exactly how I uh, was using that word structure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, not as uh, pejorative, not as uh, uh, the, the concept of controlling students, but um, of definitely just providing them the, the, the situations, the circumstances, so that they can be successful, um, not controlled, Competent. Exactly. I mean, you can think about walking into uh, a kindergarten classroom. I think about uh, <laughs> I think about Arnold Schwarzenegger's classroom in Kindergarten Cop at the beginning, where um, it's just total madness because he has no idea how to manage his classroom. But um, you can have a classroom where uh, there's a lot of structure, where uh, little kiddos are uh, working um, autonomously, where they're learning, um, and that they're not not necessarily being controlled. They're being compl- client, but that they're put in a situation to, to develop as, as individuals. Um, so that's my Ar- Arnold Schwarzenegger reference for the day. Um, so uh one last question before uh, before letting you go today um, again, a lot of the the questions that i I developed for our conversation were taken from um, you know your book, why we do what we do that was published over twenty years ago. Um, what have you learned? since you published it. Um, how do you feel like society has changed and how has your understanding of motivation changed as technology has uh, become, I think, a more uh, integral component of our lives?
1: Well, in terms of education, what I think is I, I look around schools and it it's distressing to me because we're so much focused on high-stakes tests and using them to pressure students to be learning. But that's not leading students to learn in the sense that you or I would mean the term learning. Because what it does is it gets teachers to teach to the tests. It gets students to memorize the information that they need on tests without really learning much of anything. You know, we've We've done experiments, for example, research in, in public schools in which we find that when we pressure students, when we control students, what we find is they will memorize, as I said before, but what happens with memorization is they, they, they forget it very quickly. On the other hand, when you're supporting their basic needs, when you're encouraging them to get engaged and involved in what they're doing, they're going to be learning in deeper and more conceptual ways. And people remember things that they've learned in that way. So I think what are the approach that we've got to facilitating education in the country, not only our country, the U.S., but others as well, is that there's a lot of focus on pressure and control through, through the needs of, of these um, high-stakes tests, and it's leading to a kind of learning that's not optimal by any means. It's discouraging that we're not providing the kinds of classroom supports That let people get, that let students get more engaged with the learning process.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. That was um, something that I had wanted to talk about if we had more time, but the study that you did, um, looking at two groups of kids, and for one group, the explicit expectation was that they'd be tested on the content, and the other group was that they were simply learning the content for the sake of learning um, and uh, the the varying outcomes of uh, for those two groups, and also the effect of high-stakes testing. Um, you write on teachers and how that actually makes them more controlling in the classroom. Um, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of interesting stuff in there. Um, so I'll let you go, before letting you go, any or, uh, where can folks um, find more information about you or about Self-Determination Theory? On our
1: website, the Self-Determination Theory website, and the, the URL for it is exactly selfdeterminationtheory.org. And you'll find lots of information there about publications, about um, instruments that we've used in our research. There's, there's all kinds of information related to self-determination theory on that website. So that's uh, that's where I suggest you begin.
0: Great. Uh, well, Ed, thanks so much for your time. Um, I appreciate you, uh, you coming on and... Um yeah i hope uh maybe we get a chance to talk again in the future okay well thank you